I have some really good news for you this morning. And some news that you might perceive to be bad news. God really wants to bless you in your life. But he wants to bless you in a different way than most of us expect. Everyone who acknowledges the existence of God wants a blessing from him. And immediately when we think about blessing in this life, it is our propensity to turn our gaze toward things of material or physical nature as we go through our days. Because more money and greater health is something that we can feel and experience right now. And in fact, a couple of years ago, Lifeway Research did a survey and they found that 26% of American churchgoers believe the statement to receive material blessings from God. I have to do something for God. <laughs> Nearly 70% of American church-going Christians said, God wants me to prosper financially. And we see again and again the messages of our time, but not just our time, really throughout the last hundreds of years, a reoccurring theme, a reoccurring temptation that's expressed in the prosperity preachers on television that you see today. Some people who have the largest churches in the United States and even the largest churches in the world. And the message that is repeatedly said again and again and again is God wants to bless you with health and wealth and rewards. All you have to do is something for him. And this becomes one of the core messages of Christianity for so many people. The Bible does have a lot to say about prosperity and blessing and reward. A lot of good things to say about prosperity, blessing, and reward. But it doesn't teach us what the prosperity preachers of our day teach us. In fact, it teaches us something that is even better. And so the good news today is that God really, really wants to bless you. And the better news is that God really, really wants to bless you in ways that are infinitely more valuable to you than health, wealth, or prosperity. Today we continue in our series called From Old to New to You. This is a series in biblical theology in which we are tracing themes throughout the beginning of the Bible, through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, and describing what it means for you today. And today we talk about this theme or these themes of blessing, prosperity, and rewards. And the good news is that God wants to bless you. The better news is that he wants to bless you in ways that are more valuable than you want to be blessed. <laughs> and we begin by looking at what blessing, prosperity, and reward looks like in the Old Testament. And it can be divided into three different categories. We see the category of the way that God has ordered the world, which is part of blessing and prosperity. We see the relationship that God has with people in a particular covenant or covenants in the Old Testament. And we see the greatest reward itself. The first segment is the way that God orders the world as it relates to blessing and prosperity. We see that God 
in his infinite wisdom and under the banner of common grace has taught us things like Proverbs 12, 24, which says, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Or Proverbs 14, 23, which says, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Or Proverbs 11:18, which says, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. God has ordered the world in such a way as to provide reward and prosperity to many, 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 many people, those who work hard. Those who work hard get a reward for their work. If you prepare, if you gain specific skill, if you have opportunity, and then if that skill is applied, wage and even prosperity follows, and that is from God. I once heard a story about a father who inquired of his son when he planned to purchase a much-needed automobile. When God sends me my 100-fold, the son replied, and then he explained that he recently gave a gift of $50 to God. When God sends me my reward, I will have $5,000 and I can buy that car. And when he realized his son was serious, the father responded, son, God has already given you a reward. It comes every two weeks. It's called your salary. God has ordered the world in such a way that when you work hard, Blessing and material prosperity is what follows. The second dynamic that we see about this in the Old Testament is the rewards that come from covenant faithfulness. In the Old Testament context of God making promises and engaging in a covenant with his people, Israel, prosperity and rewards are viewed as part of God's favor or blessing upon those people. It's an approval for their faithfulness. And we see this throughout the Old Testament in a variety of ways. Let me read you just a couple of passages. Psalm chapter one, verses one to three says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Psalm 112, 1 through 5, talks about this type of favor and prosperity even more explicitly. It says this. It says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. And listen here. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Light 
dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. And so you see it again, an example of what, what happens when one acts or lives in righteousness and has riches and reward as the consequence. And in fact, in the Old Testament, we see that Abraham and the patriarchs were mostly wealthy. David gained great wealth. His son Solomon acquired even more wealth for himself. And that was a sign of God's approval upon him. Israel as a nation inherited a land that was flowing with milk and honey, which means blessing and prosperity and fruitfulness for what God has for them. And we know that the covenants of God, the way that he chose to interact with his people in the Old Testament, have stipulations attached to them and blessings or curses attached to them. When people are faithful and obedient, God blesses. And part of that blessing is a measure of reward, even material reward that followed. This wasn't always the case. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 tells us that there is a vanity in the world that sometimes you look at the world and you see somebody who's righteous and they have the standing or even the prosperity of one who is wicked or one who's wicked, who's not following God, who has the prosperity of one who should be righteous. But generally speaking in the Old Testament, we see that God displays blessing in a variety of ways and one of those ways is through material prosperity. What does this mean for you right now? Does this mean that you can expect riches from God if you are faithful to him? This is where the prosperity preachers of our day get it wrong. <laughs> and this is where so many of us are tempted to get it wrong as well. Because who doesn't want the promise of riches in your house? All of us do. And yet, at the very same time, we're tempted to get it wrong when we apply the promises of God, which are in the context of the old covenant, to people, us, who live under a new covenant. The promises of God with regard to material prosperity in the Old Testament are not applicable to you and to me in the same way today. Sorry. It is what it is. If I promise to buy my children a car as a reward for them graduating college, then this isn't a promise for every one of my people, every one of my tribe, for generation after generation after generation. That promise of material blessing is for specific people <laughs> in specific relationship to me and a specific time proximity to me. God does not relate to people under the same covenant today as he did in the Old Testament. He relates to us now in a new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, here's the principle. 
God blesses obedience, always. God always blesses the obedience of his people. And in the Old Testament, some of that blessing came in the form of material prosperity and reward. But even in the Old Testament with that kind of blessing, you know what the greatest reward is? The greatest reward is God himself. God made the covenant with Abraham and he promised blessing and prosperity and in the land. In Genesis 15:1, this is what he says. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I am your shield, and because I am, you will have reward. God himself is of the greatest value, the greatest consequence, and as such to be found in his favor is the greatest reward for anyone in faith or faithfulness to him. It was God who gave Abraham and Sarah a son when they were well past their age. It was God who empowered Moses to speak when he ministered to him at the burning bush. It was God who sent manna from heaven for his people in the wilderness. It was God who dropped the walls of Jericho as the people marched around it. It was God who brought Elijah to his eternal reward as he took him to heaven in the chariot. It was God who gave Daniel the courage to withstand the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the courage to withstand and to be delivered from the fiery furnace. God is the greatest reward. Faithfulness leads to blessing and reward and God himself is the greatest of those rewards. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you place your affections upon the Lord, the psalmist says, who is the most valuable? He gives you what you really want. He gives you what you desire. But when you place your affections on the Lord, you don't desire the things that you used to desire. <laughs> you now desire different things because you change, your priorities are sharpened, your vision is clarified, you come in line with what the Lord himself is delighting in. You no longer ruminate on the need to have more money. You think of something greater. You're no longer driven by comfort or ease in life. You see something of a greater consequence. You no longer find your greatest delight in needing the next exciting experience. The most invigorating thing is the Lord himself. Blessing comes from obedience. And God himself is the greatest reward. That's a glimpse into the Old Testament. When you shift gears to the New Testament and you think about material blessing, prosperity, and reward, a different picture is painted. In the New Testament, we see that no longer is earthly prosperity a sign of God's blessing. It's not a sign of his favor. Wealth is not a sign of obedience. Prosperity is promised to the people of God, but it is promised only in eternity. 
And in fact, not only is earthly prosperity not promised, at times it is set up as the example of a hindrance toward your relationship with God. Let me give you one example of how it's not promised or an example of how it's not modeled. The incarnation of Jesus is a reversal of prosperity for him. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and on. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus left the prosperity of heaven to condescend to the poverty of earth that someday you might be rich, but not rich on earth. Rich because you inherit the prosperity of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount points to the fact that poverty actually leads to eternal prosperity. If you have a Bible and can open quickly, turn to Matthew chapter 5 and let me paint this picture for you. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points to the fact that poverty points to eternal prosperity. And he says this, Seeing that the crowds went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus teaches that the ones who are blessed are the ones who are meek and hungry and lowly in spirit and who long for God even in the midst of their difficult circumstances. And blessing from God is not primarily found in comfort, though that's what we desire. That blessing from God is actually seen in the Sermon on the Mount when you are persecuted. The exact opposite of comfort. Perhaps most strikingly, we see this displayed in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. This was a man who was a follower of Yahweh. He was righteous, at least by his own accord, because he did the deeds of the law. And a first century Jew would look upon him and say, 
that man is blessed by God. He's following God faithfully, and as a result, he is wealthy and prosperous in his ways. And when he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus walks him through the law and he says, I've done all of that. I've done all of that. I've done all of that. And Jesus says, well, then go give, sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And the man goes away, drops his head, and Jesus responds, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He would say this, and then he would go on to say that all things, even that thing, is possible with God. Jesus is not decrying wealth as such. He is highlighting the obstacle that wealth brings, which is self-sufficiency. The constant desire for comfort and the ability to have it that wealth provides and God can even overcome this and save people. And so earthly prosperity is no longer a sign of God's approval and it's no longer a sign of God's reward. It doesn't mean that God doesn't give it. Some of you here today have a lot of money. And that doesn't mean that God hasn't given you your money. <laughs> he indeed has. But it does mean that you are not more blessed than the person who has less money than you. And in fact... Your wealth creates for you some unique obstacles and temptations towards self-sufficiency. It could be good for you or it could be bad for you. But the consistent message of the New Testament is that prosperity and reward are coming for the people of God, for all of you who believe in the Lord Jesus, but they're coming for you in eternity. And so let's just look, take a glimpse at the rewards of the kingdom. The New Testament presents earthly rewards and blessings not as a form of God's blessing or prosperity, but rewards of prosperity reserved for the coming kingdom. And he says that one of those rewards is an imperishable wreath. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do so to receive a perishable wreath. But we and imperishable. One of the rewards of eternity is a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Another reward is the crown of life. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 1.4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Hebrews 4.9 talks about the eternal reward of rest. He says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. God gives earthly provision, but eternal prosperity for those who are faithful to him. God gives earthly provision for now, but he will give you eternal prosperity for those who are faithful to him. And the New Testament sets up the same dynamic as the Old Testament when it thinks about blessing, prosperity, and reward in the message that the greatest reward is God himself. Enthroned in glory, the king of heaven becomes your father. <laughs> Upholding the universe by the word of his power, the Lord Jesus becomes united to you and you to him. With the promise of inheritance of the kingdom, the Spirit of God takes up residence in you as a seal and a promise. The temptation for wealth in this world will always be before you, but you can have no greater wealth, no greater prosperity, no greater reward than God himself. As the old Fanny Crosby hymn says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Friends, there are 700 implications of what this means for you today. This arc of blessing, prosperity, God's presence, eternal reward and what it means. I'm gonna give you seven very quickly. Implication number one, the prosperity gospel of Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Copeland and many others in our time that says God's desire is for you to have health and wealth if you live faithfully to him is really not the gospel, it's the anti-gospel. And it's the anti-gospel because it requires you to do something to gain God's favor. When the message of the gospel is that you don't do anything to gain God's favor, Jesus himself is the one who purchases God's favor for you by living a perfect life, by dying a sacrificial death, by having victory over sin, death, and the devil, that you might be restored as sons of God and enjoy him forever. Implication number two, that the, one of the greatest abuses that I fall into and that you fall into, one of our greatest abuses of God in our time is valuing him simply by what we can get from him rather than valuing him for his infinite splendor and glory. He is the almighty God and there is none like him. To treat him like the genie in the bottle is beneath him and it displays in me and in you a profound lack of understanding in who he is and a profound lack of trust in his ways. When God doesn't give us what we want <laughs> and we get angry at him and we stomp our feet like children and we throw little temper tantrums, 
What an incredible misunderstanding of who God really is. Have you ever met somebody or heard of somebody who met somebody that they didn't really know who they were, even though they were of great importance? You hear stories like that sometimes of somebody meeting a prince or a king or a president or a business leader and they don't show them the honor that they deserve because they just don't know who it is. And so they're ashamed or they're embarrassed. How shameful is it when we know, we know who God is, but we still treat him like our servant. We're angry when we don't get our way. God's glory and splendor merit worship on its own. If God never did anything for you ever again, but simply acted as God, that would be enough to make him worthy of our praise and honor and allegiance and trust. Implication number three is that if God is the greatest reward, then you can expect that the more you know him, the more you trust him, the more you experience him, the more you enjoy his kindness to you, the more that you will find joy and delight in all of his good gifts and it will enliven your hope for eternity. There's rarely a day pass that passes that I don't think about and long for heaven. And the day when this earthly tent is destroyed, <laughs> but we have a home from God. I didn't used to be that way. <laughs> But the farther we go down this road, the more we long for the reward that awaits us. And there's joy in that. Quickly, implication number four, that when you give to God of your finances, that giving now becomes a joyous response to God rather than a hope for a return. <laughs> that this doesn't mean that God won't honor your faithful giving to him. God definitely does honor your giving to him but there is not a scriptural teaching of God giving you a multiplication factor on your investments into his kingdom. We give to God because we love him, because we trust him, because he provides for us in an ongoing way, and we know that he honors and blesses obedience of all kinds. Implication number five, if God gives earthly provision, but eternal prosperity to those who are faithful to him, then you can have confidence and contentment in this life. You don't need be beholden to your desires for the newest and nicest things or that insatiable desire that you have to buy more and have more and pursue more that you think will make you happy but never actually does. You can actually learn contentment in a world that pumps out advertisements to you at the tune of hundreds if not thousands a day that says you don't have enough, you're not satisfied, you need more, you can actually learn contentment. The pressure that we have on us right now to buy is unprecedented in history. And contentment is the anti-American gospel in some ways. I mean, we want to always have more. But Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content 
with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You can learn contentment. Implication number six, that the, if this is true, that God provides earthly provision and eternal prosperity, then you can reorient yourself to rewards that truly last. When I said at the beginning of the sermon that God blesses you not in the way that you expect, but in the way that's actually better for you, it's more than what you want, this is what we're talking about. It's crazy, isn't it? That some people would actually think that God's greatest concern is to make us wealthy or comfortable on earth if we're obedient, and they miss out on the fact that this reward or that reward would be worthless in a very, very short amount of time. God wants to give you rewards that last forever. Anyone who understands finance would tell you that you shouldn't choose temporary gain over long-term loss. And yet so many of us in our flesh were tempted to seek and to strive and to beg God for temporary gain, even at the cost of a long-term loss. And so we want a nicer house or a more luxurious car or more money for entertainment. But here's the thing. The $5 million home will become very dated and the materials will begin to degrade and wear down. But the eternal house from God lasts forever. The nice things that will bring you temporary pleasure now will not be with you in the grave. Life goes by so fast. Just a few years ago, I had a brown beard. <laughs> and now it's more white. And I'm not that old. <laughs> One gray hair for every church person. <laughs> I'm not as young as I used to be and neither are you. Ask anyone Ask anyone today in the hallway in their 60s or 70s or 80s and they will all say the same thing. I don't know how it's possible that I got this old this fast. <laughs> Amen. Time slips away. And so what is your investment strategy? Short-term gain? or eternal reward. Implication number seven. And this one is really, really important. They're all important, but this one, this one strikes a nerve. And it strikes a nerve because the prosperity gospel that is so often preached today that even compels the preacher to name names has a incredibly damaging effect on millions of people around the world. And this is what it is. The implication that God's prosperity for you is an eternity means that you don't have to live in guilt. That you are not faithful enough and that is why God is not giving you health or wealth. One of the most disgusting aspects of bad theology of prosperity 
is that it leaves millions and millions and millions of people who suffer in disease or have no earthly possessions with this constant sense of guilt that they are not doing enough for God and that's why God is not prospering them. And so they strive harder to do more and they never, ever, ever catch up. And if the prosperity gospel of our time is true, then God hated the Apostle Paul who died a poor man. God hated the disciples of Jesus who were all inflicted with sickness and persecuted and died shameful martyr deaths. If the prosperity gospel is true, then God hated missionary after missionary after missionary who would forego earthly prize for heavenly reward as they died in South America and Africa and China and India. And because the prosperity gospel is proclaimed today, millions of people live in guilt as they suffer, compounding their problems and giving them a picture of a false God. But friends, you need not live in guilt. You need not be ashamed if you're found to have faith in the Lord Jesus because your reward is coming and your best life now will not be defined by comfort or money. Your best life, the life that God might see fit to give you, might be a life in which you suffer for a little while, but you will obtain glory forever. God gives earthly provision but eternal prosperity for those who are faithful to him. And so what should you do? What should you do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. Let's pray. Father, in our flesh, we're so enamored by having more and doing more. God, we confess to you the constant struggle of our heart and the desire for greater material prosperity. And yet you promise us something even better. Help us today, God. Reorient our perspectives. Give us an eternal investment plan. You are worthy of honor and praise and glory. And so we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.